Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Welcome everybody to this hybrid event. My name is Alpa Shah and I'm a professor of anthropology here at the London School of Economics and Political Science. I'm really, really pleased to welcome Professor Chris Manjapra to both our online and our in-person audiences here in the Old Theatre today. Um, Chris Manjapra is a professor of history at Tufts University. Um, Professor Manjapra is the author of five books on race, colonialism, and diaspora, include um, Colonialism in Global Perspective and Age of Enlightenment, German and Indian Intellectuals Across Empire, Um, Professor Manjapra is about to embark on, uh, he's being the general editor of uh, the forthcoming kind of five-volume Cambridge History of Colonialism and Decolonization. He's founded a non-profit Black History in Action um, initiative devoted to scholar activism and public history in Boston. Now, um, today, Professor Manjapra is going to draw on his latest book, um, which is this book here, Uh, which is a comparative study of global emancipation processes and the implications for the reparations movement today. It's called Black Ghosts of Empire, The Long Death of Slavery and the Failure of Emancipation. Um, It's like a really groundbreaking, it's a brief book, it's really pathbreaking. It's brief but it covers five continents and a long period of history. And it really questions the narrative of abolition uh, and the moment of emancipation from slavery, showing the kind of long um, afterlife of slavery, the structural conditions um, which were kept alive um, long after slavery um, ended, uh, which result in uh, yeah continued persistent you know racial oppression today. Um, it's got you know lots of very interesting insights and facts, including uh, you know a que- questioning how to think about reparations itself and how at the moment of abolition, you know reparations was actually um, something that went to all the all the people that lost um, lost the slaves and and you know the amount of money that went. Um, uh, both with, the, with, with different empires, whether it was the French or the British or whether it was in the US um, that the people who actually really gained from this process were the former slaveholders. And, uh, and, and Chris Manjapra has a, has a whole new narrative about how we think about reparations, which I think is very important. He's going to tell us much more about it today. And what I'm particularly delighted about is that... Um, at some point, we were having a conversation about this book, and I was like, well, um, Chris, um, do you think you could think about the implications of the book for climate justice um, uh, today? And, um, and uh, I'm kind of blown away that he's taken that project uh, wholeheartedly. And, ha- and today, I think it's the first time this book is going to be thought around, thought about in relation to climate justice and reparations. And 
I'm really, really looking forward to yeah, hearing you speak and, and the conversations that will follow. Um, so thank you. Thank you for being here. Um, welcome. And also thank you for the lecture you're about to give. Um, I, just a few technical things for Twitter users. The hashtag for today's event is uh, hashtag LSEIII. The event is being recorded and will hopefully be made into a podcast subject to technical difficulties. As usual, there's going to be a chance for questions, um, both to Chris uh, from both the online audiences and, and, and the in-person audiences will kind of um, go back and forth. Um, and yeah, we can, we can talk about that when we're finished. Um, there's going to be an opportunity for those of you who'd like to buy a copy of the book. Um, pages of Hackney are outside and Chris will sign copies. Um, but for now, I'm really delighted to hand over to you, Chris. Thank you. slides. Do you know, do I um, press a particular button? Yes, Peter, maybe. And here? Oh. I wonder if the slides were Oh, maybe on here? Is it possible to have some help with getting the slides up? Thank you. Thanks so much. What a um, wonderful, generous introduction, Alpa, and um, I feel very honored to be here at the LSE and to be able to present on my book, uh, Black Coast of Empire, but also to think it in a different way or in a new way, um, which also relates to my current research um, in terms of uh, environmental history, climate justice, and climate colonialism. Let me dig dive right in, um, and I'll try to keep this, um, you know, within a, a time frame so we have, we have time for questions and answer afterwards. In these serious times of the climate colonial present, it is especially important to turn to the history of geographically small marine spaces, because this is where the consequences of long-standing global systems of racial accumulation and extraction are having their most extreme effects in terms of social emergencies today. The climate crisis across the Caribbean may be characterized into these main categories, amongst others, rampant uh, tourist enclosures and privatizations of ancestral ecologies, aquifer salinification, coastal degradation, oral death, extreme flooding events, catastrophic water level rise, industrial fishing, environmental toxification due to mining, and drought. This picture is from Bahamas, um, from Abaco, uh, after Dorian, uh, and this area is called the mud, where uh, Haitian 
people uh, were left stranded in many, in many ways it's still a, um, a, an underserved um, environment of crisis for the Haitians still on Abaco in 2023. I'm going to speak about the history of maroon ecology in the period from the era of the legal institution of racial slavery to the era of post-slavery and indentureship across the cusp of the emancipation era from the 1800s to the 1830s for the Caribbean and in particular the emancipation era really goes from the 1700s to the 1920s globally. The process of emancipation represented a bridge of continuity in the racial rule of capital and not its end as I will be discussing in this paper later. Plantations are the quintessential condition of racial colonial domination. They are sites of non-responsive farming through extractive monocropping, intensive toxification, and labor exploitation. For the coerced laborers on plantations, these sites are places of forced displacement, family separation, indebtment, criminalization, medical apartheid, and the list goes on. In other words, the plantation is a complex that accumulates wealth by simultaneously hyper-exploiting and abandoning black personhood. Under slavery, this occurred through the claim of property rights in black people's bodies and generativity, imperiling black livelihoods and exposing black communities to hypertoxicities and hypervulnerabilities. I think of this as a necrospeculative order, a form of um, creating a value, a financial value, in, in particular through the killing of black bodies, um, a kind of uh, exacerbation of necropolitics. Now, by ecology, I mean the condition created by an interconnected web of relationships based in the land and sea, in which human beings play a part with other beings. I think of ecology as the condition of interdependence between earthly forces, example, the wind, the water, and living entities, including ancestors and spirits, of which human beings are part. Colonial and racial rule dams, ruptures, toxifies, and obliterates the energetic interdependence and cycling of ecological systems, causing differential exposures to precariousness and death through structures of race, gender, hierarchy, and domination. In this context, maroon ecology names the conditions by which multi-species and multi-being life, what I call, think of altogether as black life, regenerates even in the midst of social, political, and economic anti-blackness and settler colonialism. Crucially, maroon ecology served and serves as the condition in which dominated and dispossessed peoples establish bases of endurance, sustenance, and generativity. The emergence of maroon ecologies arose first during the centuries of racial slavery, but then continued to arise in the aftermath of failed emancipations, and even during what I think of as the coming of the second plantation complex. In the eyes of the early Spanish colonizers, the indigenous Taino people who fled to the interiors of the distant coasts, for example, of Hispaniola, and to organize defensive counterattacks against Spanish settlements were the Cimarron, the wild people, with their wild and savage freedom. Later, the concept of the Cimarron 
in the minds of the colonizers came to apply to enslaved African peoples who shirked their assignments and disappeared for periods of time to the bush or to the caves, who did what is called the petit marinage, the small marinage, and to people who freed themselves by making the jungle their way out. The marooning peoples formed new intimacies, kinships, and new families. Here, a black metamorphosis, as Sylvia Winter calls it, or perhaps a xenogenesis, as Octavia Butler calls it, was taking place as African runaways from different origins and different kinds of experience of captivity formed communities that morphed and transmuted by generation. The colonial, the colonial gaze envisioned the maroon as the solo male assailant threatening from the wild, or else as a sly cohort of guerrilla warriors with the uncanny ability of using the environment, the caves, the mountains, the trees, the bush, and the shapes of the constellations in the heavens for their survival and their protection. Maroon peoples conspired, conspirare in Latin, they breathed with, in other words, nature. Brian Edwards' account of the, 19, of the 1795 Maroon War includes his amazed note that the Maroons quenched their thirst by drinking from, and by the way, this is a Maroon War in Jamaica, uh, quenched their thirst by drinking from the hidden water stored in the wild pine, just as they lived on, quote, Indian corn, yams, wild boar, land crabs, pigeons, and fish. These maroon foodways speak of their indigenous Taino and African xenogenesis, as yams came from, the West, from West Africa and corn from the native luxury of the islands. This 1801 print by Robert Cribb depicts the sly maroon conspiracy with the environment, the breathing with the environment something that colonial forces terribly feared. At the bottom of the image, you see British soldiers in a regimental formation. Look up the hill towards the center left of the image, and you see another regiment of British soldiers wearing the telltale indigo blue uniforms, dyed with the pigment produced by enslaved people of the Carolinas. In contrast to these linear formations, you notice the artist presents the maroons not in lines, but in group formations, notice the strategy being articulated. A group of decoys stand on the hill, making themselves hypervisible and playing idle. Meanwhile, around them, you have crouching guerrilla warriors laying in wait, conspiring with the trees and the thick ground cover. You see the maroons in the foreground and in the upper right forming a kind of perimeter, preparing to ambush the British military line. The image captures a suspenseful moment of impending engagement, the ambush, colonial order succumbing to the disorder of the wild, the disorder of the bush people. But of course, this colonial fantasy of maroons as wild and savage black men waging guerrilla war was itself a production of racial slavery and colonialism. It allowed the European colonists to determine that the best form of counterinsurgency was the, use, was the use of the bull mastiffs, a breed cultivated and reared in Cuba and especially trained to hunt fugitives. What would have been considered a crime of war if applied to European foes, the wild people were battled with unconventional animal weaponry. In reality, despite 
the colonial fetish for the fugitive maroon man, women were central to maroon governance, protection, arts, and generational practice. Racial slavery, let us keep in mind, sought to create super profits by incarcerating and controlling the generativity of enslaved people. It was from the start a biotechnical mode of conquest, fundamentally and essentially aimed not only at commanding the body, but also the womb of enslaved women. Partum ventrum sequitur was a set of technologies, institutions, and laws that aimed to obliterate family bonds, kinship ties, and the deepest essence of African human modes of being. In this way, racial slavery, in a way distinctive from other forms of slavery, was necrospeculative. Take the historical figure of Nanny of the Maroons. This is a contemporary artist, Renee Cox's rendition of Nanny. An Obeah woman, and Obeah being a Jamaican uh, Caribbean spiritual practice, divination practice, an Obeah woman and a political leader. As we know, Obeah is a New World African indigenous religion. Nanny led the windward Maroons of Jamaica in the early 1700s. Colonial writers presented her as the phallic mother, wearing a belt of nine hanging knives and on her wrists and ankles bracelets made from the teeth of white soldiers. There were other Maroon women leaders in Jamaica at this time, also Obeya women and political organizers, such as Molly and Diana, after whom villages in Jamaica are also today named, just as there is a, a, a nanny town, there's a Diana town and a Molly town. Maroon women in general were self-emancipated people, and as such, they passed on liberation to their progeny. They were redistributors of freedom in many ways, through the care of the young, and the distribution of cures among the morphing maroon people by generation, especially by the incorporation of new fugitives. The history of marinage is thus a history of indigenous motherhood, African diasporic motherhood, and later also Asian motherhood outside of captivity. These historical motherhoods were conditions of possibility for the establishment of self-sustaining, self-freed communities under the horizon of the plantation complex. Marinage is not only an act of escape from enslavement, but it is also the xenogenesis, the making of new life through difference, of kindredness among once alien life forms within the fractures of racial slavery, and the creation of new families, not just of blood, but also of affiliation and of choice. Let us pause here to note that scholars invite us to explore the scope and dynamics of maroon ecologies in at least four different ways. First, artifactual and geographic evidence. Archaeological geographers and historical anthropologists consider the ethnobotany and the anthrozoology of maroon towns across the Caribbean, such as in Trelawney Town or Nanny Town or Akampong in Jamaica. And this provides us evidence of how marooning peoples lived with their ecologies. But there are other ways, too. Sylvia Winter, in her famous 1971 novel and history, Plot and Plantation, asks us to look for maroon ecologies inside the plantation enclosures themselves, not just in the towns that arose through the Grand Marinage. Here, the folkways of planting and of harvesting 
and of curing roots in the plot, in the subsistence areas that existed within plantations, provide evidence of an alternate and resistant ontology that thrived within the agro-industrial order itself. The plot and the Caribbean peasant ways of farming and living provide an ongoing and living archive of maroon ecology. Language. Kamau Brathwaite, in his 1979 essay, History of the Voice, asked us to look at the language of plantation peoples today, their rhythm and their vibrations, as another location where maroon ecology still shows up. Here, the Creole languages of the Caribbean mediate the intimate interdependence with other species of life and with earthly forces. Maroon ecology is audible in language. Let me read a little bit from Brathwaite's essay. He said, quote, what English has given us as a model for poetry and to a lesser extent prose is the pentameter. The curfew toils the knell of parting day. The pentameter carries with it a certain kind of experience, which is not the experience of a hurricane. The hurricane does not roar in pentameter. And that's the problem. How do you get a rhythm that approximates the natural experience, the environmental experience? We have been trying to break out of the entire pentametric model in the Caribbean and to move into a system that more closely and intimately approaches our own experience. So that is what we are talking about now. It is nation language in the Caribbean that, in fact, largely ignores the pentameter, that speaks with the environment. So we look to language as a place where ecology is, in fact, encoded. And finally, divination and spirit practice. Erna Broadbur in Mile, uh, her novel from 1988, asks us to recognize maroon ecologies in the spirit practices of the people on the plantations, especially the use of plants, roots, and water in healing, protection, and curse practices. These kumina, obeya, and Mile practices do not represent any kind of instrumentalization of the environment, but rather modes of co-agency with other ecological beings that draw on indigenous African and Native American inheritances. Folkways of divination and spirit practice keep the register of maroon ecologies. Just for example, Maya, this novel, opens in the year 1919 with Mass Cyrus, a Maya man and folk healer, administering a cure to Ella O'Grady Langley, a light-skinned 20-year-old black young woman of a black housekeeper and an absent Irish colonial police officer, father, who had spent years abroad in Baltimore and was now seeking to heal her psychic and spiritual malaise. So Ella here at the start of the novel is trying to seek this malaise, cure this malaise after returning from abroad. The sense of alienation from her own people and from her own self, what the narrator calls her zombification. The cure she undergoes, which results in the extraction of a, quote, gray mass of muck from Ella, and her eventual gaining of health as a recorder and a storyteller and an archivist for her people, involves a ruckus convening of plant beings and earthly forces, including the lightning and the storms, by the mile man. Mass Cyrus. Ella is healed by maroon ecology. The divination cure stops the, what the narrator calls the spirit theft, 
that she has been suffering from for so long by opening her up to the polyrhythms of the animated black multi-species world around her. Emancipation by Design. Between 1770 and 1920, a succession of interconnected emancipation edicts promulgated across European empires created the conduits for the capital that enslavers claim to hold in the bodies of enslaved people to be disembedded, really disembodied, and then transferred into new property titles. Emancipation processes brought about the abolition of the formal institution of slavery, but also the transubstantiation of slave property into new forms of property ownership for the erstwhile slave owners. My book, Black Coast of Empire, The Long Death of Slavery and the Failure of Emancipation, shows how emancipations, that is, the processes and legal apparatuses designed to abolish slavery between the 1770s and 1920s, all contributed to the perpetuation of racial domination and structural anti-blackness through systems of law and policy. I'll just touch on some of the highlights here um, in the spiraling story. So for example, in the US North in the 1780s where emancipation began, we had here the invention of what was called post-Nati emancipations in which the womb remained enslaved but the issue from the womb would be named free. In other words, only the children who were born from enslaved women after this, the date of 1780 would be called free legally. The mothers remained enslaved. However, even under post-Nati emancipation, these children had to still serve for 18 to 27 years as bonded laborers or apprentices. In British Sierra Leone and other emancipation colonies, there developed a system starting in 1807 called the Courts of Mixed Commission. These lasted from 1807 to the 1850s. And here they, again, freed black people from slavery. But this freedom involved entering an institution of 14-year-long apprenticeships. And there were also loopholes in this called plagiarism, whereby uh, when enslavers brought the names of slaves, from their plantations to a, a court of mixed commission, they could point to some of the newcoming apprentices and claim that said person was in, is in fact my lost slave. And that person would then be plagiarized back into slavery. It was a common practice, especially in Cuba um, at this time. Spanish Americas, circa 1810s, post-Nati emancipation spreads um, but so too does this institution of apprenticeship after uh, freedom. The British Empire, beginning in the 1830s, here we have the 20 million pound reparations payment to slave owners, which was finally, the financing of which was finally completed in 2015 by British taxpayers, paid for 180 years by British taxpayers and by members of the colonies. This 1830s emancipation in addition to the 20 million pounds paid to the slave owners, also came with four years of apprenticeship, as well as the indentured labor system and debt peonage of peoples from Asia thereafter. In the French Empire, uh, between 1825 and 1848, 22 
million francs of an indemnity was imposed in Haiti in 1825, and then 126 million francs of reparations were paid to French slave owners in 1848 across the other French plantation colonies. In the Dutch Empire in 1862, five million guilders were paid in reparations to enslavers, and the enslaved who were freed were nevertheless required to serve 10 years of bonded labor. In the US Civil War, at the end of the US Civil War, circa 1865, the restitution of lands to Confederate slaveholders was completed under President Johnson. And then came the sharecropping and Jim Crow system of law and terrorization, which spelled a, kind, a certain kind of in-kind reparations payment to the plantocracy. In Brazil, from 1871 to 1888, post-Nati-emancipations, uh, post this time with 31 years of apprenticeship imposed on the quote-unquote freed people. In Puerto Rico in 1873, 25 million pesetas were paid in reparations to enslavers, with three years of apprenticeship required of the enslaved, and coming to the end now. And in Cuba in 1877, 120 million pesos in reparations were paid to enslavers, and the patrocinidos system of bonded labor was introduced. At the end of slavery, across different imperial formations, the US, the British, the French, the Dutch, the Spanish, the Portuguese, when a system rupturing capital infusion into black communities would have been needed in order to redress the environmental depletion and degradation experienced by black communities due to centuries of racial property rights and slavery, not only was compensation always paid to the enslavers, but states developed new strategies to indebt newly freed people in new ways. In Black Coast of Empire, argue that reparations movements are not at their core, therefore, about pleas or petitions for governmental response, as it is framed in the liberal public discourse of today, but rather Reparation struggle is a living tradition of critical imagination. It is a mode of thought rooted in centuries of anti-political, anti-colonial practice. Reparation struggle is deeply connected to the resurgence of maroon ecologies. In addition, it is a misconception to frame reparations only as the demand for one-off or lump sum payouts from states, international bodies, church organizations, or businesses. Instead, the reparations tradition, going all the way back to the 1780s, focused on the uncompromising demand by black communities for regime rupturing transfers of capital, land, and sea rights that would transform the system of racial, racial oppression into a reconstructed system of true social equity and reciprocity. Reparation struggle developed in the first emancipation cities of the Americas in Boston, New York, and Philadelphia in the formation of independent black churches. The New York African Society began meetings as early as 1780. In Philadelphia, Richard Allen and Absalom Jones organized the Free African Society in, 18, in, 17, uh, in, in 1778. Black voluntary organizations and churches did not just care for their living members, but sought to redress and heal the relations with their ancestors. This was an expression of maroon ecology, giving 
given the definition that we've considered earlier. The work of preserving relationships of reciprocity with the ancestors, observing rituals of reminiscence and uh, reverence for the dead was a profound aspect of the early black church. In New York City, AME Mother Zion Church at the corner of Leonard Street and Church Street in 1801 became one of the most important catacombs for emancipated people and still enslaved people to worship together. But the burial vault under the church served as an important station also for the Underground Railroad. In the 1780s, Otuba Kogwano here in London, a freed African writer, called for a, quote, general reformation of slave-owning societies after the declaration of immediate emancipation and the recognition of slavery as robbery. He demanded, in his language, reparation and restitution, which was to include free education for all those under slavery who had been deprived of the right to read and write, the elimination of Afrophobic representations in all corners of public life, and guarantees of autonomous lands. This demand for land was critical to black reparationists, and it did not mean the granting of parcels of land assets. It envisioned something much more radical, the liberation of black people to nurture their own ecological relationships, including their spiritual and ancestral relationships, with the guarantee of what Coguano called, quote, deliverance and protection from ongoing robbery and terror. In 1804, reparation struggle propelled the developments that, with the declaration of the Haitian Constitution at the end of the 13-year revolution, when Jean-Jacques Dessalines declared the sovereignty of his people from, quote, any other power in the universe under the name of the Empire of Haiti, it was under this system, this new dispensation, that historian Jean Casimir said, quote, the state of Haiti was born into a world that considered its very existence inconceivable. Although Haiti was denied official entry into the civilized community of nations, the Haitian people asserted a kind of reparative way of thinking, reparations as a mode of thought and a mode of action, when they worked out what Casimir called the counterplantation system, creating small farming peasant communities beyond the framework of state elites. Under the pressures of the oppressive post-slavery state, Haitian people fled the cities for the dense interiors of the island and established lacus, or joint family farming compounds. The lacus served as shrines for the passing down of voodoo traditions and black healing arts. As historian John Henry Gonzalez work shows, new sustenance crops were being cultivated, including beans, rice, millet, bananas, sweet potatoes, manioc, yams. These lacus were the place for the creation of a black ecology, a maroon ecology, enough for local communities and enough for the trade with local islands. Black liberation did not wait for the international order to sketch out a path to, to social transformation. It grew on its own from the xenogenesis of maroon ecology. After emancipation in the 1830s, despite the fact that thousands of acres of land across Jamaica changed hands, the vast majority of Jamaica's 2.5 million acres still belonged exclusively to the British Crown. 
This forced tens of thousands of free people to quote-unquote steal land on their own by squatting. Despite the vagrancy laws promulgated to push them off, free people across British plantation islands banded together to form new village communities. Some 200 free villages emerged in Jamaica, many infused with revivalist spirituality. In Guyana's village movement, emancipated black people and soon indentured Asian people pooled money together to purchase land tracts in common. As many as 80 people would come together to buy land title. Despite the 1850s legislation to suppress the village movement, by 1861, some 67,000 people, about a third of the total population in Guyana, lived in such villages. Free villages spread across St. Vincent, Dominica, Grenada, St. Kitts, Antigua, Bahamas, and other islands. Free villages, populated increasingly by African indentured servants, became places of Kumina, Obea, Mile, and other associated divination and healing practices. In 1865, in the wake of the American Civil War, black families on the Sea Islands in Georgia and Edesto Island in South Carolina and in other areas, including Davis Bend, Mississippi, began smallhold farming on lands received through reparation transfers from Union generals. On July 28, 1865, Oliver, Oliver Otis Howard, the director of the Bureau of Refugees, Freedoms, uh, Freedmen and Abandoned Lands, declared that, quote, all confiscated and abandoned land and other confiscated and abandoned property was to be distributed to the refugee and the freedmen, all 768,590,000 acres of it. But as I mentioned previously, all of that land was summarily returned to the plantation owners in September 1865. According to the reparations tradition, such as expressed in the thought of Callie House, Marcus Garvey, Ella Baker, Jim Foreman, Fannie Lou Hamer with her freedom farms in Mississippi, Audley Moore and Imari Obedeli, to name just a few in this tradition, Massive transfers of land and the guarantee of sovereignty to go along with it would be needed on a revolutionary and intergenerational scale to black communities in order to dismantle structures of structural racism. Reparation struggle, therefore, names the struggle to transform an entire system of racial oppression. It is the movement for systemic regime-wise change. Its fundamental aim is to destroy the prevailing ontology of anti-blackness. And as such, reparations are precisely the demand for the impossible within the impossible reality in which we actually live. My point through all of this is also that reparation struggle is not so much the struggle for maroon ecologies, but rather it is the struggle, the critical imagination, and the forms of action that persist because of the ongoing resurgence of maroon ecologies. Multi-species coalitions were always part of reparations activism. Such instances include, for example, the success of the Haitian Revolution, not only due to armed conflict, but also divination practice, folk pharmacology in the production of poisons, which were used by the enslaved against the plantocracy, 
but also the cholera outbreaks, the microorganismic conspiracy as cholera stopped the progress of European infantries, and also the environmental features of the land, such as the karst formations, the lime formations, the limestone formations that aided stealthy attacks by the people against the plantations. Or consider the resurgence of maroon villages, palenques, and quilombos across the Caribbean from the 1790s to the 1880s with their forms of plot and smallhold farming, the manioc and the yam and the guinea weed that were mentioned earlier. Consider the creation of land collectives by freed people in the wake of the Civil War, such as on the Sea Islands. Maroon ecologies as a multi-species web of collective luxury and wealth resurge in the time of the emancipations as a coalition of multi-species life respond to the, rep to the replications of property-based violence that emancipation law enacted. Maroon ecology during the second plantation complex. This is the last section of my talk. My work explores the rise of the second plantation complex, linking the Caribbean Sea and the Indian Ocean, which was actually made possible by this century of emancipation processes. It is as though the deceptions and the machinations of the emancipation process caused the seas of the Caribbean and the Indian Ocean to mix in new ways. Think, for example, indentureship, but there are other ways too, which I'll mention in a moment. The plantation complex across the literals of the hemispheric Americas had its first culmination in 1710. This map is showing that, this graph is showing that. Um, but then by 1838 and the abolition of slavery in the British Empire, we noticed something curious taking place. As slavery was ending, the plantation complex was actually spreading, it was expanding. By 1838, we see plantations opening up in Madras, in Kerala, in Bombay, and then Bengal, in Assam, in Malaya, eventually in Vanuatu, in Fiji. By the 1920s, it reaches Melanesia, Southeast Asia, Polynesia. In fact, the emancipations only strengthened the property rule born from racial slavery and the kinds of bondage it relied upon. The plantation complex expanded exponentially after abolition and because of the design of emancipation laws. In the 1840s and the 1860s, during that period, black writers and activists from across the United States, the Caribbean, and the Mascarenes turned to imaginings of fugitivity and maroon generativity of seafarers, of renegades, and Pan-African voyagers, precisely when slavery was coming to an end. The imagination of marooning increased, grew, expanded, even when uh, apparently slavery was supposedly ending. Here, for example, consider Ouaz Les Marins from Mauritius or Michel uh, Maxwell Phillips, Emmanuel Apodoca, or the famous Blake or the Huts of Africa, Martin Delaney's sci-fi novel from 1859. During the 1840s and 1860s period, during the high water mark of emancipation, marinage now as a metaphor and as an interpretive mode held increasing purchase for black diasporic people. 
The second plantation complex began to consolidate by the 1860s. In the 1860s period onwards, the countrysides of places such as Jamaica, Mauritius, Madras, Malabar, and Bihar were being flooded with cash liquidity and with credit into archipelagos of the Caribbean Sea and into the archipelago of the Mascarenes, Africans continued to arrive as indentured and or illegally trafficked bonded laborers. Asians also arrived via a variety of unfree institutions. These laborers circulated often repeatedly over the course of their working lives through multiple travel routes, both proximate and distant. Now, corporations such as some of these, which are still in operation today, the United Fruit Company or Colonial Sugar Works, others, as well as big farmers, invested heavily in transforming the, the ecologies or trying to transform the ecologies of plantation islands and coasts. In addition to laborers, capitalists invested heavily in creating new chemical geographies saturated with newfangled fertilizers and circulating plants and animal life across global distances in what Steve McCook has called the, quote, new or second Colombian exchange, what I refer to as the second plantation complex. This chart gives a visual representation of the fertilizer and bioprospecting revolution that was taking place, this new global chemical geography that was arising from the 1860s onwards as the astounding number of cash crop cultivars were being shipped across oceans and planted en masse on new plantation frontiers. So at the bottom, sugar is moving. So as sugar is moving, for example, from the Caribbean to Malaya and Mauritius. Um, coconut is moving from Malaya to Brazil and so forth. These global transfers were taking place. This global biotic system was overdetermined over, by which I mean overwhelmed by the dynamics and the itineraries of the multiple life forms it had itself set in motion but could not control. So, for example, attempts to create a command-based global ecological order started to rot from the inside because of the what were called plant pandemics, the fungal, the viral, the bacteriological pathogens that were infecting the plantations like never before, beginning in the 1880s. This chart shows the major fungal and viral outbreaks of crop diseases that devastated plantation production in places such as Jamaica, Costa Rica, Mauritius, and Fiji around the 1890s to the 1920s. So if you can see the bottom, coffee rust, sugar smut, banana disease, blister blight, Fiji disease. Many of these were, uh, were the result of fungi, some bacteria. This caused new institutions, or called forth new institutions, especially imperial agricultural departments, colonial agricultural departments, and experimentation centers, and soil, uh, soil science and mycology institutes that emerged to manage or attempt to manage the rise of insurgent fungi and other pathogens. Yet microorganisms such as Fusarium, Fusarium was the name of the fungus that caused what is called Panama disease, were highly mobile in ways that depended on other mobilities. 
They moved via the boots and the clothes and the equipment of migrant workers and labor overseers. They moved via the cyclones and the hurricanes and the monsoon winds. Fungal diseases moved more easily thanks to the newly emerging imperial infrastructures, the steamways and the railroads that distributed the soil and the spores that the soil contained across shores. In other words, fungi and other microbes were marooning from within the plantation complex. Agro-capitalism's endeavors to toxify order and command environmental life and to banish quote-unquote disorder actually accelerated the eruptions of disorder at the turn of the 20th century. This not only affected plants and the, the plantation plants, but we think of Sura disease, which was an epizootic, so epizootic event, in other words, an, an event that attacked the animals, especially the draft animals of Mauritius, or we think of the plague epidemic that spread across the world in the early 20th century, or the flu epidemic at the time of the First World War. These were in league with the crop diseases as we see the unleashing of chemicals into the environment through the use of these new fertilizers and the newly invented petrochemical fungicides and pesticides that would soon result. We could say that what arose by the turn of the 20th century was an insurgency of more than man on a global scale. This dramatic story is what the study of maroon ecologies within and against empire and colonialism reveals. To conclude, I want to take a brief dive now into the maroon ecological materialities of one specific location, Jamaica countryside. Folk healing, using plants for the cures and for curses, was on the rise across Jamaica, especially in the time of the spread of Fusarium, this fungal blight, and especially in places like the Blue Mountains, um, in Portland uh, Parish, Manchester Parish, the Cockpit Mountains, other places where we have maroon communities from the 1880s to the 1920s. As part of Jamaican practices of obeya and mile, plant materials and animal materials too were used to cure, to ensure protection against what Jamaicans called bad mind, and even to throw curses for the self-defense of oneself or one's family and even for retribution. In the 1880s, Mammy Forbes, one of the most eminent spirit dealers, spirit diviners in Jamaica during this time received hundreds of visitors from near and far in Manchester Parish. See, she splashed them with curative waters and prescribed specialized treatments of plant tonics and plant treatments, such as putting pieces of cut yam on your heel in order to draw out the infection or rubbing a tonic made of field mushrooms on your knees to relieve arthritis. Here, the treatments used by Mammy Forbes involved a redistribution of attention, of touch, of care, of physical sensation between the human and the plant worlds, a particular kind of conspiring or of co-breathing through her commerce and translation between her patients and their environments. Also in the 1880s, a man named Stuart, known as the Haddo Doctor, established a mile bomb yard near Macfield, Westmoreland Parish, with thousands of visitors attended week upon week. In 1889, an African-American prophet, a quote-unquote Warner man, 
established a religious assembly at August Town, not far out of Kingston. One of his students was this man, Alexander Bedward, perhaps the most famous and the most infamous in the eyes of the colonial state, revivalist healer and political organizer of that period. In 1891, Bedward began his healing mission at Hope River, a stream flowing by August Town that provided medicine for body and soul. In addition to healing and cures and the preparation of plant teas, revivalism communicated a social message of reparations struggle. As one Reverend Johns recalled in 1919, the August Town revivalists had, quote, held, quote, that the present social order is doomed to destruction that it is destined to be overthrown by some cataclysmic upheaval of society in the near future." Unquote. And as is well known, Marcus Garvey and Amy Ashwood were heavily influenced by Bedward. And their reparation struggle, Marcus Garvey and Amy Garvey, um, being founders of the UNIA and the UNIA being one of the most important reparations movements of the 20th century, we see here how it was rooted in an ecology. It was rooted in what was taking place in that stream at Hope River outside Kingston in August Town. Anthropological studies of Africana divination point to the symbolic expression inherent in these experiences. Divination mediated experiences of capitalist exploitation, articulated local epistemologies that resisted European epistemology, and served to claim status, especially among the outcast and the oppressed. My point here is that divination, as discussed above, also mediated the interdependence, the resistance, the reparative action that was more than man, that was ecological. I emphasize that the astonishing rise in divination in maroon frontiers, not just in the Caribbean, but also in the Mascarenes, not just in Jamaica, but also in Mauritius, was a way for the people to reassert and reaffirm the generative power of their own bodies and of their own relationships with other embodiments, invoking the luxury of life within the rotting plantation complex that sought to command, extract, degrade the vitality, not just of the people living in these colonies, but also of the plants and the soil and the animals and the sea itself. This is one way of reading that quote-unquote, gray mass of muck that Erna Broadbur in her novel has Massa Cyrus removed from Ella with the aid of the plants and the lightning and the storms. This ecological perspective helps us make sense of something seemingly quite odd, which is that colonial regimes across the plantations of the Caribbean and also the Indian Ocean and Oceania exerted their greatest efforts during the turn of the 20th century in fighting three strikingly interconnected foes. They were battling microbes through mycology and new soil science. They were battling sorcerers, obeya men, longanese practitioners, revivalists, through an onslaught of vicious laws and court rituals, as Diana Patton calls them. And they were bat battling the unprecedented labor and trade union unrest of the Caribbean peasantry, culminating in the 1920s. I think we might recognize the deeper anxiety of colonial rule here, the threat of life itself to a necrospeculative order. Life's sheer exuberance, it, its xenogenesis, its unbidden 
potentiality was the great threat, its way of blasting out of assignment, of ambushing the regimens and the reproductive fantasies of patriarchal colonial man. By recognizing reparation struggle as one of the main expressions and mediations of maroon ecologies, we recognize that the point of reparations movements is not to await the grant of entitlements from the state or institutions, nor to await a providential change in the quote-unquote racial weather system that we live in, but rather to remain, as Donna Haraway has said, response-able, response-able to multiple, to multi-species conspiracies of liberation in the present time by remaking relations among human and non-human beings beyond the domination of the ruling order. The ecology of reparations, the crucial condition of freedom struggle, insists that black communities have an unbendable and unalienable right to dwell in ecological luxury, free from structural racism, financial systems of debt and accumulation, toxic exposures and the cognitive disfigurements of hierarchical compulsion, chief among which is post-slavery liberalism's pervasive, compulsive anti-blackness. And the myth of the impervious human actor instrumentally manipulating the extensive wilds. In fact, the wilderness, our wilderness, is intelligent and conspiratorial beyond our wildest dreams. Thank you. Thank you so much, Chris. Um, I'm always like in great admiration of historians like you who sweep across these broad swathes of you know centuries and across broad continents and um, you know uh, and, and, and as an anthropologist you know it's like deeply empirical embedded in one like location over years. I really admire that um, vision and confidence and scope you know and and so I'm. You know, I'm so sorry Hazel Carby couldn't be with us here today. I mean, she would be a far better interlocutor uh, than I. But I have a few conceptual questions, I guess, or, or thoughts rather, and that I maybe kick off our discussion with. And there's going to be lots of people in the in the audience who have questions and comments for you, and, and on online. So maybe I'll start off with a, with a few 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 thoughts. Um, uh, um, what the first is, I was just, as I was listening to you, I was thinking, wow, this is so interesting. I mean, I just read your book, um, uh, you know, Black Ghosts of Empire, which is this, you know, deep, dark history of slavery and its afterlife, continued afterlife today. Um, uh, you know, and that's the ghosts. And here you seem to be doing something quite different. And um, if this is a dystopian vision that you have in Black Ghosts of Empire, here what you're presenting us is almost a utopian vision, you know, of the possibilities, the spaces that were kept alive even within plantations um, to have an alternative idea of freedom. I know emancipation is a word that you, you know, do away with in the book, but. Um, uh, yeah, you call it reparations. Um, so yeah, I, I just, um, I mean, is this, is this what you're doing? Is this, is this a new project which is like trying to, yeah, think about spaces of utopia for a better world and like 
trying to find that even within the plantation systems and then thinking about it like at a you know broader level and how that could be important for yeah more equal a more um, yeah uh, uh, a world that yeah has also thinking about ecologies at the, at the center of how we recreate the world I'm just yeah just struck by the very different different narratives that you're presenting in, in, in this presentation to what is in your book yeah yeah um, thanks for that Alpa and you know as I as I make a as I respond I am also um, just wanting to say how much I admire um, the work that you've that you do and um, you know reading Night March and the way that you write about the the lives and the um, actions and the imagina imaginary of um, Adivasi people and the Naxalites um, you know that I just find it so powerful um, and so t for you to ask the question I'm just you know wanting to note how deep that question goes because your own work is deeply involved in um, finding the not just the stories but the lives and the life worlds that are in fact always uh, present even despite um, let's say you know the projections of the state for example or as Sylvia Winter in that 1971 article calls it our sense of this impossible reality that is our reality um, so in that, so I I I, I feel that um, you know it's um, the, the my 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 interest is um, I wouldn't say is in utopia. Um, my interest is in what mm, persists and survives even in the midst of um, the ongoing centuries-long assault, you know, on uh, everyday assault on um, uh, on. On, first of all, on the enslaved, um, and then later on on varieties of, of racialized people, um, and I suppose as a historian, you know, it, it, we're we're always part of our narrative strategy is to look for the arcs in history, in time, and um, where do things start, what's their middle, and how do they end in very basic terms. And I don't think it's really about needing to find either a utopian or a dystopian ending. But I, I do think it is more of a, um, an interest in the dialectic of how um, spaces of uh, black ecology, of maroon ecology, of, um, of um, reparationist thought, reparations as a mode of thought, how that is in, it cannot be tired out or is, cannot be suppressed or cannot be eliminated, uh, cannot really be slowed down despite how much comes at, you know, black communities from, uh, you know, from this current liberal order, for example. Um, so it, I, I suppose there is, an, there is an interest that I have in resilience. Mm. Um, and I think that that resilience is not aspirational or utopian. It is descriptive because um, it is only, it is the proof that we still have reparationists doing their struggle today or that we still have black Afro-solidarity today um, is, is itself the evidence that uh, there is a res there's an ongoing resurgence. 
um, of, uh, uh, of what the plantation order and what the liberal state and what you know, the racial order simply cannot control. So, so yeah, I, I, guess I'm, I guess I'm growing more interested in what, can, what is not containable within this reality that we seem to think is our reality, that there, there's a lot more going on. Um, yeah, let me just end there. Yeah, so it's very hopeful. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I wanted to ask you about your use of reparations. I mean, you, in the book, you have kind of two different narratives of it. On the one hand, you have reparations. You, you, it's a big critique of reparations because you look at how um, uh, former slave owners were the ones who were given reparations for their loss, right? So reparations becomes this kind of state political project that you're critiquing. You know? But then on the other hand, you reclaim reparations for something that is much more revolutionary, which is um, actually you're asking for nothing short, nothing, you're asking for a revolution in, in, in the way in which we think about land ownership, in which we think about the oceans, in which we think about yeah, inequality more, more widely. And, and so I, I was wondering like, you know, why you stick with reparations when it has been so co-opted by state regimes and why, um, uh, you know, what about freedom? <laughs> what about revolution? Um, uh, so, yeah, I was just interested in, in your use of reparations and your, your persistence with it um, and your choice, yeah, of, of um, sticking with it uh, and reclaiming it, yeah. Sure, um, and I'll answer that. Um, I, th I can answer that briefly, I think, but before that, I wanted to say I don't, I really don't think that it's hopeful, I'm not hopeful, I don't identify as a hopeful thinker, so I just want to, you know, <laughs> restate that it's, it's not hope that I'm interested in or that I feel, it's something different and it's something that actually Don, Donna Haraway also speaks about um, in that same essay that she speaks about being response-able, which is different from being responsible, and she says, what would be involved in giving up the the language of whether we can keep hope or not, and rather talking about what it might be to be heartful. Um, and, and if we're heartful people, uh, to me that's different from being a hopeful person. Um, and it's a little bit more in line with what I think I'm trying to do in this paper, which is you know, the way that um, Sylvia Winter talks about um, if we are, can I use this language, if we more heartfully look at um, what peasants are doing in the Caribbean today, we would actually see that there is smallhold farming which is going on and which is very resilient. And we would become more curious in tracing that, those forms of, um, of cultivation. Or what Brathway talks about in terms of if we're more heartful in how we think about or listen to the vibrations of um, Caribbean language, we would hear something in it that is already a resistance to the pentameter. So there's something about changing our sensibilities, which I think is um, something I do want and I, and I do find inspiring. And I also think that, you know, like reading your book, um, I felt that there, you're such a heartful person in that book, a heartful describer and interlocutor with um, with the actors who you're interviewing. So I, I kind of wonder what, um, what it would mean for us academics or more generally those of us who are in the world of 
you know, writing and sharing ideas and trying to just opinion here um, uh, in, in, in radical ways or in, in, in small ways, what would it be for us to really commit ourselves to be heartful in the work that we do? That's, I believe, you know, put that as a question for, for our discussion. And then um, in terms of reparations, why use the language? I suppose I, I, I use the language um, partly for a very clear political reason, which is that um, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a key term today that has been, is being kind of pigeonholed and, and, and um, limited in um, ways to make it palatable to um, uh, ref not even reformist, but, but um, you know, simply almost, you know, almost regressive uh, kind of political projects. And um, it's therefore useful to remember that reparations was a term, was an actor's term, and was used by um, radicals to talk about something very different from, let's say, a cash handout. So I, you know, I think that's important just in terms of uh, trying to adjust public dis discussion today. Mm -hmm. um, but I suppose I'm also interested in the concept of repair. You know, I mean, we live in a world formed by colonialism and empire. So what does repair, what can it involve, what must it involve? Uh, um, um, I think that's, you know, a, a, an important conversation. I think reparations is, can be used, can be a word to refer to that, which may be a different discussion than, than freedom. Um, and maybe related to a conversation about liberation, but um, but you know, I, let me just leave it leave it there. Yeah. yeah. Maybe one. So just following on from that, I mean, you define reparation struggles as not a struggle for maroon ecologies, but a struggle that's possible because of maroon ecologies. And um, I have so many questions about maroon ecologies and what that is. But um, just for to stick with that for the moment. Um, so the message I'm getting from you is quite different to a message from another kind of big book that we discussed a few years ago here, um, which is The Dawn of Everything, which was um, written by David Graeber, my late colleague, and, and David Wengrow, where you know, part, the message of the book is we've always had different ways to imagine the world and to create like new worlds um, throughout history, right? we've gone from hierarchical to egalitarian systems all the time and it's it's a question of imagination whereas what you seem to be saying and this is i'm asking for a clarification is that actually no that is only possible because of the of having ecologies you know the, the possibility of maroon ecology is only possible because those um, plantation slaves, you know, left the plantations and reclaimed land and had their free villages, or within the plantation environments, they were able to capture bits of land to maintain, you know, maroon economies. So there's a material basis um, to to the reparation struggle, which is rooted in what you are calling maroon ecologies. So I just wanted to kind of understand that better, like how important is that, this like, the need to have this kind of physical environment, the land, the material resources to enable this reparation struggle, which is a struggle because of maroon ecologies. I understand that you are including many more things in maroon ecologies, including divination practices, including kinship relations, but, um, but also crucially, 
um, the material base. So I just wanted to yeah, ask, you, ask you about that. Yeah, that's a great question. And I want to say two things there. Number one, um, I find it really interesting that uh, Fannie Lou Hamer, when she worked to create the Freedom Farm um, in Sunflower County in Mississippi, which was 700 acres that uh, was made into of, of, of cotton land in, in the Mississippi Delta, which she bought um, through collective ownership and then converted to smallhold farming for sustenance crops. That her point there was, we have to create the f this freedom farm in order, using her language, to have the conditions to really imagine our liberation. So. So the ecology becomes the condition for a mode of thought. And I think that, that was really striking to me, um, that it's, it's, it, it, and that connects to being heartful as opposed to hopeful in a sense, because I think what Fannie Lou Hamer was saying in the 1960s and 70s was that by creating a new or returning to an ecology that the sugar plant the, that the cotton plantation had had removed, one is also returning to sensibilities, to um, ways of feeling, ways of tasting, ways of knowing, um, including ancestral ways of knowing. And all of that together is what, in fact, creates the possibility to really know mm -hmm. what a freedom, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. a true freedom can, can be, yeah. and what one yeah. can and must struggle for. Um, so, Yes, I think the, that, that's, that is exactly my point, that the ecology comes first. And, and the other thing I wanted to say is um, there's a wonderful, wonderful book that um, many of you know. It came out, I think, last year by Malcolm Ferdinand um, called Decolonial Ecology. And um, he has this, you know, it's, very, it's a philosophical treatise and it's very clear. And he makes this lovely argument at the beginning about what he calls the double fracture. Um, in which we are currently uh, caught. And that double fracture is, number one, the, the fracture that has been so normalized that you know, man stands against, quote-unquote, the quote-unquote man stands against, quote-unquote, nature. And the second fracture is that um, the realm of the civilized stands against the realm of the wild. These are the double, this is the double fracture. And so, how, and so his, he's asking the question, how do we trouble or disrupt that? How do we, how do we, free ourselves from that? And and I do think that, um, you know, when we ask questions that are um, framed in terms of what do we as human beings do in vis-a-vis vis-a-vis the environment, which is this extension, which is out there. How do we instrumentally change or adjust or you know remediate or adapt to or, in some ways we can hear ringing in that, this fracture of man versus nature. Mm -hmm. And that's what I think these maroon ecologies, these black ecologies, which are also connected to indigenous ecologies, mm. are um, fundamentally disturbing. Um, because that's not, that, onto that ontology mm -hmm. doesn't operate in that way. It doesn't, it's not, it's not disturbed, it's not fractured mm. in that way. Yeah, and of course you, you just mentioned it, but I was thinking throughout how is this different to indigenous ecologies is there a difference you know are we yeah but maybe I'll open the room out for questions before I change you around yeah I think there's a mic that's going around
Thank you so much. This was wonderful. Um, I wanted to ask about the prospects for Maronage, Maroon Ecologies, and reparations in the kind of context of Plantation 3.0, if we, if we could go there. Um, you know, thinking about the kind of green horizon enclosures that are taking up large swaths of the earth, ex, you know, bioprospecting and all these kinds of conditions, but particularly, I guess, in the context in which certain aspects of what you're associating with Marunash have been dramatically winnowed. Um, I mean, I think you've already, in this discussion, pointed out the kind of um, the closure around reparations as increasingly just a kind of state-oriented project and prospect. But also I thought about you know, the colonization of Africana religious worlds by white evangelicism um, and the kind of the, dissip the dissipation of plant and other kind of knowledges that go along with this kind of historical trajectory that you're pointing to um, precisely because people have less and less access to any kind of land through urbanization and the kind of violent enclosure that comes along with it. So I, just, I, guess, I guess it's a question about the, both the prospects but also how these kinds of worlds might be um, you know, reinvigorated or recultivated in this context, and if you have any sort of thoughts about that. Thank you so much for your great talk. Thanks. Um, so as you're speaking, the one, before I answer a question, it's in my mind to um, wonder about, you know, the, what you're calling Plantation 3.0, which is so, um, it's interesting to try to map that because, you know, like in some ways, there's, if we want to, like Plantation 1.0, uh, um, is, is the, un, under the era of enslavement itself, then we have 2.0 in some ways comes with indentureship and sharecropping and debt peonage and all of these, but it also comes with new chemical frontiers and new forms of toxification and the coming of the fertilizer. But then you could say you have um, beginning in the 1940s, and it's interesting how the world wars, you know, um, become these leverage points, these launch pads for a new kind of plantation moment era, you have the coming of the pesticide and, you know, pesticide science and um, uh, the, the, the ratcheting up of toxification that comes from the 1940s and 50s onwards here, you know, Rachel Carson's Silent Spring is all about that moment. Um, and then one could then move forward in time, and I'm sorry, I, I haven't done that in my mind, but you're, you're, you're inspiring that thought in me, is to kind of think through what are these different watershed or threshold moments in which we have the, um, the, um, the kind of uh, you know, exponential uptick in technology and, 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 and chemical infrastructures that are used uh, to enclose, but also to extract and to toxify, and how that seems to be replicating in different moments, including in our own. And I'm thinking about our own moment of, um, you know, genetic um, engineering um, and of AI and um, and and of new chemicals and so forth. So, so there there are all of these kind of uh, thresholds of the return in an, at a new level of the plantation. And amidst all of that exacerbation, which it's a history of exacerbation, the question you're asking is what, maybe if I, I'm going to interpret it this way, where do we see um, plantation ecologies um, in some ways 
coming back in or reasserting themselves, or to use a word that a lot of indigenous scholars use, resurging. Um, and you know, I I think that um, the 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 places where we might see the resurgence may be in small places, but it doesn't. But their smallness doesn't relate to their lack of significance or importance. So I'm just thinking it through. But you know, one of the places that I think is a real epicenter um, for the resurgence of maroon ecologies is in this small village in Jamaica called Woodside, where Erna Broadburn, you know, this she's in her 80s now, but this group of people who work with her. Um, they don't only work with her, they work on their own, but she, she kind of brings them together in interesting ways, uh, are just, have been for the last 50 years and are going to keep on doing what they've been doing, which is you know, holding black space events for Afro-solidarity. Um, they have a project called the Ancestry Garden of planting indigenous and African plants and training the youth. Um, they are, Erna Broadbury is, very close to maroon communities and to maroon diviners, and you know, having people come who have knowledge of plant healing to do plant healing, but also to train um, others in plant healing. So, I and and you know, and Broadbur, who's also the novelist, um, you know, she is um, she thinks of Woodside, or she feels because she's heartful, she feels Woodside as a place where the ancestors are also alive. And, and so I, I take a lot of inspiration from that because it's, it suggests that um, it's not all for us to know, you know? And in some ways, I think that, uh, I do think that, that, that this, the ancestors um, and, and the spirits and various other ecological beings, for example, the fungi and the bacteria, they have plans too. Um, and I think that it's kind of, their plans are things that we're just, beginning to, in some ways, figure out. But I, what, if, what would happen if we were to trust that more, you know? Yeah. So, um, just over here, please, in the middle. Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like, why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or, can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. There's a few questions, Chris, so we I'll have got a lot of time yeah. left. Yeah. So sure. I'll, I'll try and be quick, but um, thank you. That was a fantastic lecture. I really enjoyed that and the conversation afterwards as well. I had another question about language um, and about a word that cropped up a couple of times in your lecture, uh, which was luxury. And I, I'm kind of assuming that it's a sort of reference to Kirsten Ross's communal luxury book, right? And, and her work on the, the Paris communes and this kind of idea of luxury, which is um, about being together, about, about being communal, about art, utilitarian art, not bourgeois art. And um, heartfulness is the kind of word that you used in, in the conversation. Um, so I just wanted to ask to give you the opportunity to say a little bit more about your choice of using that word in relation to ecology and, and to this idea of, of marinage or the maroon. Um, but also in the context of, because you started the talk by 
with reference to tourist enclaves in the Caribbean, which of course is a sort of very different kind of luxury, right? A luxury which is about dispossession, etc. So I, I'm curious about what kind of work there is to do in order to achieve the kind of re-significations that I think your talk was gesturing mm. towards. Yeah, yeah, I love that, that observation of re-signification, reparations, mm. luxury, exactly. wealth, you know, these terms. Um, there, is a, there is a politics of re-signification um, that I think, yeah, I, I'm very much committed to. Um, and in terms of luxury, you're completely, absolutely right. You picked up that, um, you know, the book on um, the Paris Commune and and um, the luxury of the Commune um, was very inspiring to me. It's also another source for me to be thinking about luxury in this way is is Fred Moten, who um, talks about he resignifies wealth, not luxury, but in a related way where you know he says and he's drawing this. Marx actually says this, but um, he's drawing through drawing it out in a new way that our common need is the source of our common wealth. I mean, that, and then he plays with that, um, which, is, which is true. You know, the fact that we are incomplete and we need each other, in fact, is the source of social and common wealth. Um, and it, I think that's, you know, it's in here that um, I'm inspired to think of uh, ecology as actually a site of luxury, a site of wealth, because it is a site of our interdependence, i.e. of our a lack of being impervious, i.e., of our need, right? Our need is our is our luxury. Our need is our wealth. Um, but again, there there is a question about um, how beyond resignifying, how do we resensibilize ourselves to that, right? Um, and I think that's very true. And how what a what a what a contrast it is to the way that the luxury islands of the Caribbean are places in the in the in the kind of global imagination of consumption, um, of, ex, uh, of waste, right, um, of extraction, and how that is what wealth and luxury uh, mean. Meanwhile, I, I think that these sites of maroon ecology um, really speak to a whole other kind of luxury that press up against and, um, and are actually very disruptive to uh, that fantasy, you know, that unreality that has been normalized as real. So many parallel thoughts. I'm reminded of Marshall Salins' essay on the original affluent society, and then the other end of it, you know, fully automated communism, which is another kind of version of luxury, you know. Um, anyway, so many questions. Um, one over there, and then one over there. Maybe we'll take two together, and, and have we got online questions too? Okay, yeah, and, and, then, and then to you. Hi, um, thanks very much for your talk. Um, was incredible. I um, was really curious um, when you were um, speaking about um, divination um, rituals, but also um, connections, like multi-species connections to plants um, and as various forms of food and medicines. Um, I was curious about, um, I, I do some research on um, on marinage in the plantation in the U.S. South in particular, and was really um, noting sort of in my memory about how these same medicines that, you know, you are um, talking about kind of, you know, being outlawed and, you know, as part of practices, right, um, 
uh, were also uh, deployed often, right, um, as remedies for the planter class. Yeah. And, um, and, you know, just kind of following historically, that I was curious about um, if you had anything, you know, to say or sort of thoughts about how those kinds of um, practices, the medicines got separated out from the practices themselves and helped to kind of establish um, current day pharmacology, right, and contributed mm -hmm. to those sort of um, traditions sort of absented from this sort of um, illegalized, right, um, uh, divination ritual practices. Um, thank you. Thank you. That's a great question. Um, maybe I'll take the two questions that are left and then I'll pass on to you and we have to end in very shortly. So, yeah, over to you. Um, my, mine is a comment, really, and that is that um, when you uh, listed the Caribbean islands um, who you, where you have seen examples of this, you said Antigua, but you didn't say Barbuda. And in that twin island state, um, Barbuda is an island that has held its land in common since slavery and is currently fighting its own government to retain that land status, including taking um, a court case against a developer to the Privy Council and losing the case. And so I wondered whether when you said Antigua you meant Antigua and Barbuda or whether there was a situation in Antigua that um, I personally wasn't aware of because to me Barbuda is the example of what you have been talking about for most of this event. Thank you. We're just going to take one more question here and then Chris I you will have one minute to respond yeah. to whatever you want to. <laughs> Thank you for including me. Um, the context is I am a Jamaican student. I studied health and international development here, but I studied maroon ethnomedicines back home as a part of my degree. So I was just wondering what your thoughts are on the role and place of maroon ethnomedicines today to bridge the gap or help to fight against the inequalities that certain communities do face in the general health systems where they're ostracized or not given enough treatment. So how they can bridge that gap. Thank you, and it re relates to Daniel's question, yeah. Mm -hmm. So I, I have only one minute, so I can't <laughs> respond to everything, so I'll be selective. Um, and the, the, the question that I will just briefly point out is, you know, what I'm thinking about when you ask your question, and also um, with your question about ethno-medicine, um, um, is how the process of extracting or separating um, wealth from the 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 the, in, the tr tremendously internet fabric of um, Africana lives and commodifying that and disembodying it um, and then financializing it you know that is the logic that is the, and that is a logic of death making that is the logic of and it's it's one that targets uh, black being um, in so many profound ways. So it's I'm just reflecting on that almost in microcosm, right? What you have pointed out about what um, happens, how pharmacology is in fact rooted in learning from and stealing from um, indigenous communities, Africana communities, commodifying it while also 
destroying the bodies and the families and the family bonds of those communities. Um, it's a microcosm of the whole problem, um, of the whole necro-speculative, necro-political order. Um, and just so that doesn't end up being the last word, it is also the case that despite that necro-speculation, um, life, black life, persists. You know, it regenerates. It continues. It cannot be controlled. Um, it cannot be contained. And to me, that is, you know, it's not only the dialectic, it's what um, Brathwaite calls the tidalectic. It creates a tidal wave um, in multiple ripples that can simply not be traced linearly. Um, and I think that's what is really inspiring. So. Thank you, Chris. That was amazing. Um, thank you so much. I, I want to thank all of you for being here and, and your wonderful questions. And also the BSL Life Translators, thank you so much. And thank you to the stewards. Thank you to the fantastic II team who always make sure every event goes so smoothly. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, especially, Chris. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favourite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.